mediated conversation on SAFM. 27 minutes now to nine. The time over the last few days, there's been outrage over the plans by the auction house, by an auction house to auction items that used to belong to Nelson Mandela. The house plan to auction Madiba's ID documents, his sunglasses, even the hearing aids that he used were going to be auctioned off, I mean, literally to the highest bidder. There can be no doubt that some items have huge historical value and can be incredibly powerful. For example, from time to time, items that were created here in Africa and then stolen by occupying European forces are found still in European museums. Sometimes the museums refuse to give those items back. Sometimes they'll allow the items to come back to Africa and then still kind of claim some kind of ownership over them through a loan scheme or something like that. In Europe, there's been huge tension for many years between Greece and the UK after a British man stole what are now called the Elgin marbles from Greece. The UK has refused to give them back. So then why do certain items have such power and how should this be managed and who owns the items? Dr. Ali Klongwane is a researcher in the History Workshop at Wits University, also I understand a former head of heritage in Joburg and at the Hector Peterson Museum. Ben Maswenga is the CEO of the Heritage Conservation is in charge of Heritage Conservation Management, excuse me, at the South African Heritage Resources Agency. And Dr. Jane Mufamadi is the CEO at Freedom Park. This is your mediated conversation this morning. We start then with Dr. Ali Klongwane. Dr. Klongwane, good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning and thank you for inviting me to your program. If I may, let me start with just a personal example. It's not a South African example. Um, Many years ago, I was lucky enough to be in an exhibition about the physicist Albert Einstein in Geneva. And one of the documents on display there was the long telegram he sent to the American president, Franklin Roosevelt, telling Roosevelt that the United States must develop an atomic bomb. And there's this document in front of me, and there's a direct line from that document to the bombing of Hiroshima, the end of the Second World War. And I can't tell you the power of that document. I thought I was staring at the very beginning of the Cold War, the nuclear weapons race. And that's just one example. How much power do historic items actually have? Well, first, they have a lot of power. And it is important to indicate that they have power across class divide. It is not only well-known figures who produce material culture that tells us more and better about the societies we live in that show us how in the past the current, the present is imagined or was imagined at the time, but they also help us to reimagine better futures and better futures can be imagined when we know better about ourselves, the contradictions that we grapple with as society and also about the everyday of our ordinary lives. You looked after historic items, if I if I'm correct. You're actually around the Hector Peterson Museum. I mean, some of the items from our history must have immense power. Yes, I worked at Hector Peterson Museum and I also worked at uh, Museum Africa, which is uh, the older museum in Johannesburg. And one of the things I can point out about Hector Peterson is that uh, we struggled to find the material cultures of the class of 1976. And those, at the time, it was just almost about uh, an event that had, a historical event that had occurred 
almost about two decades before. So it tells us that if we do not have a strategic plan of uh, preserving material culture, of collecting it, but even more important, we need to address the culture that is missing in many of our societies here in South Africa of bequeathing some of the important items to institutions that can look after them better. Museums, art galleries, foundations, those would then also assist us to then determine their historic value and at what is it of local significance? Is it of provincial significance? Is it of national significance? Or is it of international significance? And that will assist us to say, how best can we then look after them? There's a there's a, 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 a funny phrase in English, which is you, you're touching history. You know, sometimes when you talk to someone, sometimes when you hold something in your hand, when you see something directly in front of you. And there's another phrase that the person who who wins gets to write the history. So if you control, if you have ownership or possess a historic object, does that give you a certain power? Indeed it does. Uh, ruling classes control certain objects so that they impose ways in which they should be understood and interpreted and used to tell histories. Oppressed communities across the class divide also see power in their items. It can be a pick shovel by a worker who once worked underneath the mines it can be a dustbin lead by a student who resisted the police during the 1976 uprisings. All those at a glance may look insignificant, but as you go deeper into them, as you start utilizing them in the making of histories, and making of histories is not only about the past, it is also about understanding the present and the challenges that we are grappling with. And that's where the power lies. It's, it's also, not the money that is the power. Is it also about um, to tell history, you need to tell a story. Um, and a story has immense power. And in some stories that are true have immense power. Some stories that are, are not always true have immense power. Um, and and having the item, you know, helps you to tell the story. This dustbin lid protected this person who was being fired on by police. Indeed, um, particularly in public histories, whether it's memorials, museums, or public art, these items have immense power in the sense that uh, they don't only tell the story uh, they also uh, give the viewer a better sense of the depth of the story that is being told or that still needs to be told or that needs to be problematized and understood a little bit better. If these objects have a sort of power... Um, does that mean there can be big arguments about who displays them in a museum, who doesn't display them in a museum? Can that get quite contentious? Well, yes, museums from time to time grapple with what to do first with the items. 
which ones to choose and which ones to leave out. And some museums, you know, uh, come straightforward and indicate that uh, this exhibition has been made by curators and the curators have exercised a right, a very difficult right to choose what is significant or not significant. But that also helps the viewer and the reader of the display or the exhibition to also bring his or her own views and contribution to the exhibition, knowing that what is on display is not the beginning and the end. There could be more to it. There could be more that is hidden. And the viewer then, you know, using his or her critical uh, consciousness, interprets what is on display, on display and gives it nuance. That also applies in terms of what needs to be kept, what needs to be collected in the first place so that it finds its place either in the museums or in the archives. A lot of difficult decisions have to be taken there and they shouldn't be taken by individuals. In most institutions like museums, galleries and foundations, they are committees and reference groups that come together and look at these items and be able to say, should this be preserved? Can this be lost? If it is lost, what does it mean for the history of our societies for future generations? Dr. Ali Klongwana, thank you very much indeed. A researcher in the history workshop at Wits University and as you can hear also ran the Hector Peterson Museum. 18 minutes now to nine. Your mediated conversation around the power of historic objects continues. Ben Maswenga is the Senior Manager for Heritage Conservation Management at the South African Heritage Resources Agency. Ben, good morning and thank you for your time. Good morning, Stephen, and good morning to your listeners. You were very angry at these plans to auction these items that once belonged to Nelson Mandela. Why do you believe it's wrong? Not necessarily angry, but we are advocating for an adherence to our National Heritage Resources Act, as well as the regulations that govern the movement of cultural goods between nations, specifically in this instance between South Africa and the United States. We feel that, as you were speaking earlier with the previous guest, that cultural memory and collective memory is significantly important for a nation state. And therefore, without these checks and balances being adhered to, we may result in a situation where there is significant cultural loss in South Africa. I mean, there was, I mean, years ago now, but it turned out that all of the television interviews of people like uh, Nelson Mandela and I think even Winnie Marikazela Mandela during the struggle were owned by British television companies because the uh, SABC at the time didn't interview them. I mean, that's the kind of problem we're talking about. Yes, we're talking about that type of problem. And I think on a broader scale, um, in the African context, we've gone through periods of colonization where a lot of our historical artifacts were taken overseas during times of duress, during times of oppression. And in the modern era, we see the same thing replicating itself, and that's for economic reasons. Because while they don't go to the British government, they end up in the private collection of a very small minority of people that have the resources to purchase these items at auction. If something belongs to a person, and then that person passes on, normally they go to their children. if someone's a historical person, is it different? I mean, is that why Nelson Mandela's ID document doesn't belong to his children? 
or is it theirs to sell? And I don't want to bring lawyers into it this early in the morning, Ben, but um, there must be a sort of deeper conversation around that issue. Yes, there is a much deeper conversation. And these particular regulations and laws don't only speak to the items that relate to former President Mandela. They also relate to items that speak to former President Diklak, former President Mbeki, and former President Zuma. Um, Earlier on, again, when you were speaking with the previous guest, you spoke about the communication that Einstein sent to Roosevelt. So that that is an indication of the Roosevelt era in American history during World War II. So in South Africa, we already speak about the Mbeki era. We speak about the Matiba era. We speak about the Zuma era. So how are you going to narrate the Mandela era if you cannot talk about the struggle of liberation and all the associated objects that relate to that struggle? So yes, we understand that the former president was a family man. He had children. He had grandchildren. He bequeathed certain items to those children. But those items are still regulated under our legislation for the very reasons that uh, were mentioned earlier. What does our framework or our legislation say about them then? I mean, do they belong to the nation? No, the ownership is not the issue. The issue is the export. What the regulation states is that any items that relate to a notable figure in South Africa, which includes our heads of state, I think that is quite obvious, um, cannot be exported from South Africa without obtaining a permit from SARA. And again, the previous speaker spoke about when you are curating in a museum, you have a reference group that decides what's going to be displayed and what's going to be in the archives. We follow a similar process when it comes to the export of goods. We say this, perhaps the key to the Robben Island prison cell, or perhaps the Green ID book, which was used in the first democratic election of South Africa in 1994 for the former president to cast his first vote, that might be significant and should not be exported. So we also follow a similar process of, let's say, curation when determining what can be exported and what must remain. And in this instance, these items were never presented for assessment and therefore they were transported, in our view, illegally. So does that mean they could be sold to a South African who promised to keep them here? If it was in South Africa, that's the conversation we could have. But the problem here is that the items were taken to New York first And after they were taken to New York, we were made aware that there there was an intended auction, which again is a violation of the National Heritage Resources Act. Had um, Dr. Makasiwe informed us that there would be an auction in South Africa of these items, we still would have insisted that she consults with the relevant stakeholders and interested and affected parties before proceeding, but she would not have required a permit. The issue is that when you export these items to a foreign market, there's no way of any South African institution that to keep track of these items, especially if they end up in a private collection from an anonymous bidder. I'm always amazed in a way that someone would want to own something that belonged to somebody else. I mean, I mean, seriously, who wants someone else's hearing aid? <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of, as you know, the former president is a global icon. At some point in, in our history, as human as South Africans, I think the former president was the second most recognizable figure in the world after Coca-Cola. So there is a lot of value in the items that relate to the former president. And there are also a lot of collectors. There are people that collect memorabilia 
and out of um, as a hobby or again as a deep passion you have people that collect medals from world war ii medals from world war one you have people that collect coins and you have people that collect memorabilia that speak to presidential eras etc so there's a lot of value especially and i think one of the most famous and one of the most important political figures of the last century um i mean is there a little bit of ego here do you think look i own madiba's glasses look at me um, I don't want to say there's ego, but there is definitely a sense of prestige. Um, if you are able to say these are the aviator classes that belong to the former president, there's a lot of power in that. So I do understand where the, um, the desire to own these goods come from. But at the same time, I'm not going to say that it comes from an egotistical place. I don't want to speak on the mindset of the potential buyers. But from our perspective, we believe that these items should be accessible to all South Africans because they speak to our collective memory. They speak to the history of apartheid. They speak to the anti-apartheid struggle. And of course, they speak to our most famous statesman, which is the former President Mandela. Ben Mwasinga, thank you very much indeed. Senior Manager for Heritage Conservation Management at the South African Heritage Resources Agency. In a moment, Dr. Jane Mufamadi, the CEO at Freedom Park. It's 10 minutes to nine. Mediated Conversation on SAFM. Eight minutes to nine, the time. Continue your mediated conversation this morning about the importance and power of historic objects. Dr. Jane Mufamadi is the CEO of Freedom Park. Dr. Mufamadi, good morning. Good morning. When you want to teach people about our history, how important are some of our historic items to that? If you want to teach children about Hector Peterson, the dustbin lid that protected children who were being shot at could be really crucial. Definitely that could be crucial. In fact, we do have the dustbin at Freedom Park in the museum because that dustbin tells a story. To an ordinary person, it's just a dustbin. But when you hear what the dustbin did, what the dustbin symbolizes, that is a lesson. And that is part of our history and heritage. Do you think people want to see them? I mean, people do Do people come and see a document or an item? Does, a, does an item like that draw people to it? You'll see people in the museum and actually people will go and look at that and spend some time looking at, at that. And there are other objects, obviously. Yes, definitely they do. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, as Dr. Longwani said, even documents, um, people will come specifically to see a document, a handwritten document, because it is the story behind the document. It is also what the document symbolizes. It is also who wrote that document, because out of that, that is part of a bigger story. That is part of a bigger identity and heritage of a people and a community. And when we look at individuals, even in museums um, that are specially designed to honor individuals and our heroes, we look at that person holistically. We look at that person as a person, as an individual, as a family person, as a politician, and as a leader in various forms, because you want to give a full picture. Therefore, anything associated with an individual it's part of, can be part of heritage, can be part of a bigger narrative, and people will want to come and see. If we talk about Madiba as our hero, as a symbol and an icon for our liberation and freedom, people will be curious, how did he live as an individual? Because you also want to project him 
as an ordinary person who had challenges like you and I, and who had certain personal interests, but that is part of who he is. Collectively, that personal aspect is what makes him an icon as well. Um, so it's also, it's as close as you can get, isn't it? You can't now go and speak to Nelson Mandela or shake his hand. You can look at the document that he wrote. I mean, it's about that. That's as, There's a sort of power of being as close as you can be. And I mean, it, it may be Nelson Mandela in our case. Um, that for other people, there might be uh, cultural masks that were made hundreds of years ago. It's as close as you can get to what you were at the time, if that makes sense. Is that the attraction? Yes, that is the attraction and that is the spirit behind because this is an inspirational figure. We want to understand, we want to be as close as possible to these objects and draw what we call the spirit out of them. So they they transform from being ordinary items, ordinary objects to a higher value. That is what we call associative value, the social aspect of the, the objects that we talk about. That draws people and it has been proven the world over that that becomes a source of attraction, a source of lesson and a source of inspiration. You talk about drawing the spirit out of something. How do you display it so that it draws the spirit out of it? There are different ways and it depends on how the items are displayed, whether it is in the museum. Other museums will have what they call special collections and they will have guiding roles and principles on how, if you want to interact with certain objects and artifacts, how you go about doing that. For example, sometimes you go to museums, you see them, they say you do not touch, but in other instances, you are allowed to touch an object because you still want to be to be as close as possible to what the objects uh, mean. So there are different and varying ways in which that can be done. I think sometimes people um, don't really want to spend much time looking at our history. They'd rather spend time on their cell phones. Uh, And I find that disappointing. But do you find that there's a strong interest in our history and that these displays, these objects, um, can increase that interest in our history? They do. Definitely, they do increase interest. Uh, They they expose um, and, and become opportunities. And these days we, we're looking at issues around, as you say, mixed use, because they could be digitized. Other people will access them on their phones if they're lazy to come to a museum. But other people feel it may be easier and more special if they're closer, if they can interact with such objects at a closer level in, uh, by coming to a museum. So we have found that certain specific objects will attract uh, people for various reasons and yes become a draw card um do you think that there's always going to be this desire for historic objects and could the demand for them actually intensify and if that happens it's going to be harder for us to protect them yes it looks like i think this just exposed a challenge that we we probably as a nation, and it's not just South Africa grappling with the same issues on what is the best way to to preserve and protect certain objects and artifacts as part of a people's identity, especially preserving them for future generations. Um, History and heritage is in the past, but it's also in the present because from the past we draw lessons and inspirations and they encourage us to take decisions today 
and we bequeath that to the future. And therefore, looking at various options, we do believe that uh, such objects needs to be preserved, but we need to do more to educate the nations and also maybe to revisit and strengthen some of our laws so that it's clearly articulated what are the expectations. What we, we also need to realize that our, our heritage laws also protects private collections. There are certain guidelines that even if a collection is privately owned, can be protected by law so that the users and the owners can follow and abide uh, certain processes if they want to utilize and if they want to take certain um, um, decisions around them. Dr. Jane Mufamadi, thank you, CEO at Freedom Park. Really appreciate the time. Bringing in to your mediated conversation today, my thanks also to Ben Mwasinga, Senior Manager for Heritage Conservation Management at the South African Heritage Resources Agency, and Dr. Ali Klangwana, Klangwane, I should say, is a researcher at the History Workshop at Wits University and uh, also a former head of the Hector Peterson Museum.